They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. Don Lewis was a remarkable friend to many people and to me. Don was professor of church history at Regent College, the seminary where I studied, for over 40 years. He had a doctorate from Oxford. Yet when he unexpectedly passed away just over a year ago, what was most celebrated about Don's life was not his teaching or scholarship, but his steady, generous presence as a friend to so many people. From literally around the world, people shared about Don's formative friendship in their lives and spoke of the blessing, the transformation they had experienced through it. Don's vocation as a remarkable friend began late in life. After a transition in his faculty role, he entered into this less busy season and experienced, as we so often do in such seasons, this sense of loneliness, a deep sense of being alone, no longer at the center of the things as he once had been. In this season of less visibility and aloneness, Don spoke with James Houston, the first principal of Regent, about his sadnesses, about his longings. And Dr. Houston gave Don this striking encouragement. In the midst of this season of loneliness, he told him, you must give away what you do not have. Don took that riddle-like charge to heart. And he took it to mean that in the midst of his loneliness, he was to cultivate the kind of generous, consistent, and honest friendships that he longed for. I and so many others were the beneficiaries. Today, we are continuing and largely concluding this sermon series related to our Thanks Be to God campaign. And connected to last week, our focus this morning is on generosity. As I said last Sunday, this is a generous community. You are a generous people. So rather than this specific exhortation like, be more generous, I want to explore together what it is that is taking place when we give. What are we doing when we're generous in the name of Jesus? Last week, our focus was upon giving as an act of sacrifice, an expression of devotion or value to God. That's what's happening as we give part and parcel of a life that is offered up to the Lord. This morning, I'd like to focus upon giving generosity as a participation in grace, a sharing in God's economy of abundance and generosity, an expression and aspect of life in Jesus. In exploring this, I'm going to draw on several of our readings this morning, but with particular attention to the text from 2 Corinthians. And in our reading from 2 Corinthians, in both chapters 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul is engaged in some sneaky behavior, some crafty maneuvering. We see in our text this morning that Paul is celebrating the participation of the Macedonian churches in his collection for the church in Jerusalem. So like the church in Jerusalem is impoverished in need and he's celebrating the fact that the Macedonians have given to this. They're like, we're gonna contribute. And he's like, that's so great. But he's specifically naming their generosity 
to the church in Corinth as a way of motivating the Corinthians in their participation in giving as well. He's coaxing them to match or exceed the generosity of these Christians from what was actually a rival area in the Roman Empire. It's like writing, you don't want the Christians of College Station to outgive you, do you? You don't want the Christians of Waco. We have Father Matthew from Waco and Baylor here. We're so glad to have him. But in doing this, in making this kind of like comparison, kind of sneaky, crafty thing, Paul emphasizes, you'll notice, both the poverty and the tribulation the Macedonians were experiencing, as well as their wealth of generosity. So we see in verse two, he says, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Not so much rich in what they could give, but rich in their earnestness, their willingness to give. What produces that wealth of generosity, even in the midst of difficulty, suffering, and trial? The experience of difficulty, of trial and trauma, can so often produce in us this inward-looking, protective crouch, right? The inability to look outward, to extend ourselves on behalf of others. Why is that not the case here? In verse 1 of our reading, Paul makes this clear statement that this unexpected, overflowing generosity is an effect of the grace of God that has been given. This doesn't deny like the agency, the praiseworthy action of the human beings involved. He exhorts the Corinthians to, to grow in this act of grace. But it does clearly identify God as the ultimate source of generosity. That these churches, these Christians were able to act in this way in the midst of their suffering was the work of God's grace. As we think about our own generous action in this moment in our shared life, as we think about it in the whole of our lives, our desire to be generous people, we can see our generosity as similarly sourced and rooted in the grace of God, sourced in all that he has given us in creation, the material goods we enjoy, the life we have, sourced in the gift of Jesus Christ, who, who Paul will write in just verse 9, just beyond our reading, became poor that we might become rich and sourced in the riches we have through the Holy Spirit, the, the Spirit of grace through whom God's abundant presence, His love is poured out in your life. Resources available to us now in real time such that we can see ourselves as participants in God's grace, such that we are able then to give in the midst of trial, such that we can give what we ourselves do not possess. When you think about Dr. Houston's advice to my friend Don, you must give away what you do not have, that statement seems to violate almost every tenet of self-care there is, right? <laughs> it's not a particularly empathetic statement. But I don't think that the instruction was meant to convey, like, your felt needs are irrelevant, your emotional experience is unimportant and needs to be ignored. I think rather this statement connects to something that the apostles Peter and John say in Acts chapter 3 when they're approached by a crippled beggar in need. They say, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. 
resources are available to you. Whatever situation of trial and suffering you face, you have resources in Christ. I've referred to this before, but it's like so perfect, it's too easy to pass up. The Bank of Nova Scotia in Canada, Scotiabank, has this slogan that applies here. You're richer than you think. You have a heavenly father, a creator who has made you in love and has provided and is actively providing for your material needs, is sustaining the life you live. You have a savior in Jesus Christ through whom you've been brought into abundant and eternal life. You have with you, in you, the presence of the living God through whom you are more than a conqueror and through whom the resources of the kingdom of heaven are now at your disposal. I think the Macedonians were in touch with this reality because of their extreme poverty. Out of the overflow of their extreme poverty, Paul says, like, what are you talking about? In that place, they were in touch with these resources, the reality of all that was theirs in Jesus Christ. Next week, at the conclusion of this campaign, it will be the Feast of All Saints, and we will celebrate a number of baptisms. It is this reality that we will be baptizing these people into, plunging them into this life, into the abundance of God's grace and generosity. If you are baptized, this is the context in which you live, in which your financial life takes place, in which you and I make decisions. This reality of abundant and overflowing grace remains even in, especially in, situations of trial and suffering, need and lack. What does this mean? Now, obviously, we live in a finite and material world. We live in a fallen and broken world where there are competing values and so often a sense of limited resources. I am not saying that in Christ you can just like ignore all that, like ignore financial wisdom, ignore prudence, right? The book of Proverbs is in the Bible for a reason, right? Like you should read it and do what it says. When it comes to the decisions we are making as part of this community right now, what we can commit over three coming years, there are things that you have to consider and weigh, of course. But what I do want to encourage you in with regard to whatever commitment you might make this next week, and beyond that, as you seek to live as a generous person in the name of Jesus, is that you would recognize that in Jesus Christ, you have been brought into this realm, plunged into this abundant provision. That you would recognize that you are in intimate relationship through him with the living God, who has your needs and your future needs well in hand. And so alongside considerations about how to save and disperse the resources you've been given, alongside considerations of inflation and rising interest rates, consider, remember that in Jesus, by his grace, you're richer than you think. And exercise discernment. Be wise, be prudent. Make your decisions from that place. In our gospel reading this morning from Luke 19, Zacchaeus is, is brought into the orbit of Jesus, into proximity with him and his kingdom. And in response to this encounter with Jesus, he gives, right? And this is a response not just of generosity, but economic justice. 
But the idea here is not that Zacchaeus is like buying his way in, nor do I think it's best understood as this act of thanksgiving, like I'm so glad Jesus came to my house. I think we can best conceive of Zacchaeus' offering as an expression of how he has been brought into the orbit of salvation, that he has been plunged into the realm of God's grace and abundant provision. And from that place, he makes reparation. From that place, he practices generosity. Our generosity, our giving, is an expression of a similar placement, a similar reality. We have been plunged into the realm of grace. We don't give of what God has given us as a way of buying into his kingdom, but as an expression of our already secure place in that overflowing of life and blessing, abundance and goodness. This is an aside. We're going to go down a bit of a rabbit trail. I apologize, but it's important. Notice that Zacchaeus' offering is made to people, to those who are likely poor, to those who have been defrauded by him. It's an act of worship, but it takes the form of a blessing to the poor. And similarly, Paul uses language in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 3, that elsewhere in Exodus 35 and 36, our Old Testament reading, relates to the people of God making an offering for the construction of the tabernacle. In Exodus 35, the, the people of God each give according to their ability, the same phrase that Paul uses here, for the creation of this place of presence and worship to God. And they give far beyond so much that Moses has to tell them, like, stop giving. And Paul links the giving of the Macedonians to this act of worship in Israel's history. But here, it is explicitly an act of generosity to bless the poor. To bless brothers and sisters in Christ who are impoverished, who don't live near them. It's international, it's intercontinental. Ron Sider has pointed this out in his amazing book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. What I want you to see is that there's this connection between the worship of God's people and generosity toward the poor. As I've been working to prepare for this campaign, there are various biblical texts that are recommended, uh, touching on the topic of generosity of giving that are intended to be used to like inspire giving, to get the blood flowing, to get the money flowing. <laughs> but the thing that has struck me as I've looked at so many of these recommended passages is that they're not simply about giving in general. They're not simply about giving to like resurface the parking lot or put in an executive bathroom in the senior pastor's office. <laughs> but they're specifically about generosity to the poor. Generosity to the poor is to be a marker of the life of the people of God. Paul's challenge to the Corinthians is that they would excel in this act of grace alongside the grace of faith and knowledge and speech. I think there's a temptation here to both conflate things and separate them. There's a temptation to conflate things and say it's all generosity, like what's given to the parking lot and what's given to the poor, it's all the same. And that often then can lead to neglect of the specific call to the poor. But there's also perhaps a temptation to play these things apart against each other, as though a space devoted to the worship of God is the opposite of care for the poor. 
But what is clear in Scripture is that these elements are to be connected in the life of the people of God. That our generosity toward the poor is an expression of worship to the triune God. And that such generosity is rooted in the right knowledge, the rightly ordered worship of him. A few years ago, there was this established pretty large evangelical church in my hometown of Vancouver that for a few years in a really cool ministry opened their building one night a week to house neighbors experiencing homelessness. And over time, they were petitioned to stop this practice. It was kind of like an expression of nimbyism, if you're like, not in my backyard kind of thing. And there was this injunction from the city of Vancouver. There's too many unhoused people congregating around the church because of this ministry. And this church fought this injunction, fought the city of Vancouver, and won by arguing that this restriction was an infringement on the church's ability to worship. They argued that using their space to bless their poor neighbors was as much a part of their life as gathering on Sunday for services. They saw those acts as together an expression of rightly ordered worship, right participation in the grace of God. They weren't saying like, the worship services don't matter, we should just be this. But nor were they saying this is like a tangential thing that would be nice to do if we could. They saw them as a whole cloth an expression of their devotion, of their worship of the Lord, of their participation in God's economy of grace. As we think about our life at this property, we are called to offer up this space to the worship of the triune God. Would it be an expression of our devotion to him? And as an expression of that worship, we are to abound, to excel in generosity to the poor, especially among sisters and brothers in Christ. These are together the call upon the people of God, connected in our offering of ourselves to him. And if we were to neglect any aspect of that, the judgment of God will be upon us. That's actually a pretty easy thing to say because like how much is enough, right? Like I get that. But all I want to emphasize is this connection, connected nature of all of this. Generosity before the Lord, the fostering of this place as a place of worship unto him. And generosity with this same space, with all our resources to the poor, as an aspect altogether of our worship to God, our participation with him, as an expression of our having been plunged into the way of Jesus as participation in his grace, as I've said. And as participation in grace, our giving, our generosity, this call to abound in these things is much more about invitation, is much more about promise than it is about obligation. Just beyond our reading, Paul says, I am not commanding you. The implication is he's like, I could command you, but I'm not. But notice how the Macedonians have desired, have pled to be a part of this work. They don't perceive the call to be generous as this oppressive thing, but a joyful, hopeful, gracious thing. You want in on this way of life is the implication. I once knew of someone years ago who struggled with profound anxiety. It had plagued them their whole life. And at a certain stage, they had in their bedroom this small fish aquarium. 
like one or two goldfish or something like that. And the presence of this aquarium was a blessing to them. It brought this modicum of like comfort and rest. And this person wasn't wealthy or wasteful, but somehow, in some way, they became fixated upon the amount of energy and cost that it took to run the pump of this aquarium. To wonder about how the money, really the sense, I imagine, that was going to keep it going could be spent to care for the poor or could be given away in some other fashion. They started to question this small thing. That oppressive fixation was more related to like their mental health than it was to anything related to God's economy of abundance and grace. Like that was not the voice of Jesus in their life. It was more reflective, in fact, as we talked, as their friends spoke with them, of an economy of scarcity and legalism than it was of the kingdom of heaven. There is the call upon us to be generous as a participation in grace. And that in itself is something that is gracious and life-giving. It's a call to an abundant way of life. It's a call to make something more of what we have and what we are. The effect of God's grace in Scripture is so often to take what is given and multiply it. Multiply its effect and its power. That is part of what it means to be drawn into the abundance of God's grace. His grace works in us more than we can ask and imagine and can cause our humble offerings to abound more and more. In our Old Testament reading, there's Bezalel and Aholiab. They're just like craftspeople. But Bezalel is one of the only individuals in Scripture that's specifically named as anointed by the Holy Spirit to work with his hands as an offering to the Lord. And the idea is the Spirit is somehow infusing his earthly human skill and making something more of it. You think of 1 Kings 17, the widow of Zarephath is drawn into God's economy of grace through Elijah and by her own offering of the little she has. She gives the last flour, the last oil to make this meal for Elijah. And abundance is what she receives. That, what she gives becomes the most memorable flour and oil that she has ever owned. It's there in the Gospels, the two loaves and five fishes that are offered to be enough for 5,000 and all the people of God. The perfume poured at Jesus' feet becomes something celebrated through all history. These things become more. Those who give them become more. We see this enacted in our worship as bread and wine are brought forward and by God's grace become spiritual food and drink. In proximity to Jesus, in participation with God's grace, what we offer becomes something more. As we draw near in faith, we become something more. And the promise of that then allows us to give earnestly, joyfully, to give freely, to be rich in generosity. Not because we ought to, but because of the promise. The promise of something more. This is the logic of the quote on the front of your bulletin. right? The promise of plenitude and fullness that animates sacrifice and self-denial now. It's a promise in the end. There's these amazing passages in the early church fathers and mothers imagining the new heavens, the new earth, and they're like, the grapes are huge. You'll get a whole bottle of wine from one grape and stuff like that. And it's this picture of fullness, of plenty. 
in the end, but of which there are tastes and glimpses here and now. This promise is why the encouragement to give what we do not have can be heard not as this oppressive thing, but as an invitation to participate in that fullness and plenty in the economy of God's abundant grace. I believe the opportunity is before us in this season, but also at all times in our life with Jesus, to give ourselves over to his purposes that we might see and experience something of the fullness, the grace that is promised. A few months ago, at Krista's ordination to the diaconate, the bishop who officiated, Dan Scott, at the end of the sermon, like, spoke this prophetic blessing over our community, over Church of the Cross. He said something like, this place is going to grow. He didn't specify what that growth means, but we can be assured, I think, that it involves growth in grace. And Bishop Scott continued then to suggest that in light of this hope, each of us should consider what it is that we might be called to give. It was so on the nose that it made me wonder if I had talked to him already about the capital campaign and the building purchase, but I hadn't. It seems to me that by the power of the Holy Spirit, the bishop touched on this invitation that God is extending to us in this season of life and at all times, that we together, this final week, would consider, pray, and discern. Heavenly Father, how are you inviting me to participate? Not as this oppressive thing, not as this obligation, but as a gracious invitation to participate in grace, to grow in grace. And an invitation into the possibility of seeing what we give and seeing our very selves become more. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.